So often this was the case, a dowry was paid when uh, families were wedded uh, who were families of royalty or significant political power. I mean, a lot of times these marriages were more business arrangements than they were marriages. But the dowry was one of the ways that the two families would uh, ensure that the marriage was sealed for their mutual benefit for one another. So as you might expect, uh, there have been some uh, large dowries and substantial dowries and even some strange dowries paid throughout history. The ancient Egyptian pharaoh, Ramesses II, as you all remember, I'm sure, when he got married, his wife bestowed on him a whole bunch of livestock, and this included a rather impressive herd of goats. Now, many of you guys are like, what? You can get goats when you get married? Where was this when I got married? Okay. Another dowry, there was a Scottish king, and he was actually raised in captivity in England from a child, and uh, the, Scot- uh, the English were demanding a ransom, actually, from Scotland for the return of their rightful king. Uh, this rightful king's uncle was ruling in his place, and the king didn't want to pay the ransom because he was rather enjoying himself ruling Scotland while the rightful king was in prison. Now, over time, the uncle died, and the king of Scotland was released from England, but England still considered the ransom owed. They said, you still owe us that ransom. Now, see, while he had been living in England, he had fallen in love with one of the king of England's relatives, and he decided they would get married. And so, when they were going to get married, uh, the new bride bought brought a dowry, and the dowry was this, a 10% discount on the ransom that he owed. He still had to pay the ransom, but they discounted it for him. So we got a ransom punch card. You buy 10 ransoms, get one free. When King Charles married the Portuguese princess uh, Catherine, uh, her dowry was actually one of the largest ever given. Several major ports, including the port of Bombay, which is modern-day Mumbai in India, and I don't know if you know anything about Mumbai, but today it has over 20 million people uh, in it. So she provided to her husband uh, a rather significant amount of wealth. So dowries serve to ensure that the marriage is a good match. Not only that, it ensures that the bride, in the event that her husband dies or abandons her, could be uh, taken care of. Now, the Bible refers to the people of God those uh, in God through Christ, those who have received forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ, the people of God are called the church. And throughout the New Testament, the church is referred to as what? The bride of Christ. Marriage, in fact, is used as a picture, as an image of the relationship of God and His people throughout the Bible itself, and specifically in relation to the church, all throughout the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. So, What kind of match was this marriage between the church, His people, and God? Was this a good match? Have you ever thought about that? Was this a good match between God and His people? Was it mutually beneficial for both parties? As the bride of Christ, what's the dowry that we brought to this marriage? What's the dowry we brought to the marriage with God? And I think Jonathan Edwards might have said it best. He said this, we contribute nothing to our salvation except our sin which made it necessary. So that's our dowry. We're marrying Christ as the body of Christ, and we come to this marriage with nothing more 
than our sin, which made this salvation necessary. So the question is, how does this work? How could we possibly have a relationship that is so completely undeserved? How is it possible that we might not merely have a passing relationship with God, but a a relationship with God that can only be described as marriage? How is that possible? And here's the reason, it happens to be the title of this message, because God is a God of grace. God is a God of grace. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 again. I'm going to read just verse 4 again. Even as He, God, chose us before Him, I should say this, I'm, I'm misreading it, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God is a God of grace, first of all, because He wanted us first. God is a God of grace because He wanted us first. It was God's idea to have a relationship with you. It was not your idea to have a relationship with God. He had the idea first. When did God have an idea to have a relationship with you individually and to us as the body of Christ? What does it say in verse 4? Before the foundation of the world, before the creation existed, God first wanted relationship with us. God's plan to have a relationship with you as an individual started before He made anything. It started before time began. God's plan for us started before He had any, any uh, active, creative uh, order, where, before earth existed. He said, I want a relationship with you. And God experiences all the time, even at one time. And so in that moment, before He had even created anything, He said, I want a relationship with you. He was first. If you think you can be God to the punch, all it means is you have to live for eternity past before He was alive and existed, and He's lived forever, so you can't do it. It was His idea before creation began to have a relationship with you. I'm going to go one step further. God, before creation, wanted to have a relationship with you in spite of the fact, and in fact, even though He knew it would require redemption. Before the creation of the world, God wanted to have a relationship with you even though He knew it would take the cross. Now, we must understand, you know this, I mentioned this before, the cross was not plan B, right? You knew that? God didn't create the world, and then we, we mangled it all up, and He said, well, what in the world am I going to do now? Hmm, start over? No, the cross was not plan B, the cross was plan A. Before the creation of the world, God said, I want to have a relationship with you, even though it will cost me the cross. He knew all along it would take the cross to pursue us, and He pursued us all the same. He he came after us in spite of that. So we need to understand that if God is a God of grace and He wanted a relationship with us first, and He wanted a relationship with us first that would require redemption, then that means He initiates the relationship, and the relationship depends completely on Him. The relationship depends completely on Him. This puts many of us in a bit of an uncomfortable spot. God gets to decide why this relationship is a relationship to begin with. He gets to decide why this relationship is good. He gets to decide what it means for this relationship to be good. God, in fact, gets to decide everything about our relationship with Him. He is, in fact, well, I don't know how to say it. Well, He's God. I don't mean to disappoint some of us. 
we aren't, despite our, our best efforts. So God defined what's good about this relationship. He said, I want a relationship with you. I'm going to pursue it for all of time. I'm going to provide for it by redemption, and I will determine precisely what is good about having relationship together. And as it turns out, this is fantastic. His ideas of good are better than any of our silly notions of good. What are some of the things we think are good about a relationship with God that He may or may not think are best? Let me just list a couple of things we often pursue in relationship with God that are benefits but not always His primary concern. We want a relationship with God because He provides us comfort. Does a relationship with God provide comfort? Of course it does. Thank the Lord it does. Does it always provide comfort? No. I might share, and I would hope some of you might share with me, there have been few things in my life that have caused greater discomfort than my relationship with God. He absolutely refuses to do everything I say. It's frustrating beyond all. We want a relationship with God because it provides blessing. We want a relationship with God because maybe if we line up everything right in our life, God will provide us plenty. God will provide us healing, or God will provide us ongoing health, or maybe God will provide us control. We can finally work the levers in our life to get things to go our way. But we can't manipulate God. If we could manipulate God, I would suggest He's a useless God and not worthy of worship. God is a God of grace, and He wanted us first, and so because of that, the entire relationship rests upon Him, and a result of that is He defines all the terms as as to what's good about our relationship with Him. Look what He says is good about our relationship with Him at the end of verse 4, Ephesians chapter 1. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And we want a lot of things from our relationship with God, and certainly because we're in church on a Sunday morning, we're certainly going to tip of the hat to holy and blameless. What we really want in terms of holy and blameless in our relationship with God is what? I'm being uh, facetious. I never am normally. What we really want is for other people to be holy and blameless. It would be a lot more convenient if they would stop messing us up, right? Now, us, though, what we really want from God is healing and blessing and health and all these other things. But God says the absolute best thing I can give for you, the absolute best thing, I have been stewing on it and planning for it and providing for it since the beginning of time. I'm going to redeem you and have a relationship with you, and I'm going to make you holy and blameless. I'm going to make you holy and blameless even though you've sinned. You are one who has sinned but is defined as holy and blameless. Can you believe that? Having sinned, I am called holy. Having sinned, I am called blameless. Normally, one who has sinned is called what? Blameful. Anything but holy. And God says, what I'm going to do, crazy as it may sound, is take those who have sinned and call them blameless and holy. And what He is saying here in Ephesians 1-4 is He's saying, I want you to understand that for all of time, God has been seeking you first, that you might have a relationship with Him. He wants to call you holy and blameless, that we might live holy and blameless. Not to become holy and blameless, but because that's what we already are. And he says there's nothing better than that. The expected response of those who have received relationship with God to be made holy and blameless is to say, you know what, God is good, He's smarter than I am, 
maybe living my life in the, in the way He has made me is the best thing for me. Maybe holy and blameless is the right way to go. I'm already there. I may as well live that way. God is the God of grace because He wanted us first, that we might, even though we are sinners, be brought into relationship with Him, holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. You can list all of your sins before God as a Christian. What does He say? Holy, blameless. For all of time. Now, I would say maybe it's a little bit shocking, just considering what we can be like, that He wants relationship with us at all. But look at what happens in the next verse when He describes the kind of relationship He wants to have with us. So, God is a God of grace, first of all, because He wanted relationship first. Secondly, God is a God of grace because He wanted us as family, as family. Let me read again verse 5, if you don't mind. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. God wanted us as family, and because of His great love, He decided in advance to adopt us as His children. In love, He intended to make us a family formed by adoption, a family formed by receiving from Him His name, where He commits and covenants to draw us into His family and call us His children. This means we are not naturally His children. What are we naturally children of? We're naturally children of death and sin. We're born into sin because of the heritage that we have from our parents and their parents, all the way back to Adam and Eve. And God says, I have a plan. I want to adopt those who are children of death and sin into my family and make them children with and in Christ. He wants to adopt us to bring us into a family relationship with Him. Uh, Paul says it this way over, he also mentions adoption over in Romans, excuse me, Romans chapter 8. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. I'm going to read Romans 8, 14 and a, a bit after. Romans 8, 14 begins this way, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We are brought into relationship with God, co-heirs with Christ. What does the Son inherit from the Father? What does the Son inherit from the Father? He inherits everything. When the Father uh, dies, the Son inherits everything. Now, God doesn't die, but nonetheless, Christ is the Son of God, heir of the kingdom of God. And He says, I want you, those who have rebelled and lived a life of sin and a life of death separated from God, I I want you to be in my family. I want to adopt you as sons. And maybe if we can get our head around this idea that God would adopt us as sons, we would say, well, we're going to come in as sort of sons, junior level son, JV sons, 
will come in. There's like the sons who live out in the barn, and then there's the good sons, which in this case is Christ. What does he describe our relationship with God like as children of God? Co-heirs with Christ. The son, father-son relationship, the father-child relationship in Christ brings us into a, a relationship of closeness that's the same, intended to be the same as that as Christ has with the Father. He wants to bring us into a relationship of intimacy and closeness, where as a son, we can come to the Father with whatever is on our hearts. We can come to the Father knowing He receives us, not because we are worthy, but because of the relationship. As sons, we impose on the Father. We assume upon the Father. We interrupt the Father. Now, this is a little bit challenging for many of us because this is uh, uh, informed by the relationship we have with our own Father. Of course, as children, we interrupt our fathers as He's under the sink trying to fix the plumbing. And there are some times that that Father will respond much as our a heavenly father, oh, come on in, son, what can I help you with? And there's other times, the monkey wrench, what are you doing? Are you bothering me? I'm trying to fix something. But see, God is that father where we can always come to him and say, Ava, father. He's always attentive. He's always glad to be interrupted. He's always looking forward to us to impose ourselves upon his closeness. He wants us to take advantage of the fact that He has made us uh, into such a close relationship with Him. He intends for us to do so. God is not offended by the fact that we take advantage of Him. I would suggest God is offended by the fact that we don't more often. I'm sorry, that's just awesome. I want to listen to it some more, so... I love it. Please don't be embarrassed. We love the loud kids. The kids are awesome. God brings us into relationship of closeness through Christ. We are co-heirs of the kingdom of heaven with Christ. He wanted us, not as employees, not as slaves, not as secondhand uh, sons that He's got to put up with. He wants us co-heirs, sons in the kingdom with Christ Himself. This is what John says over John chapter 1. The true light, that is Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming to the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, that's us, and His own uh, people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in in Him, uh, He gave the right to be called the children of God. Children of God, not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And then later in John chapter 3, Jesus will talk to Nicodemus the Pharisee, and Jesus will tell him, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. You've got to become a son of God, co-heir with Christ. He adopts us by an unrevocable covenant into His family that we might have an inheritance with Him. Now, Paul was writing to a city in Ephesus, which was a part of the Roman Empire, and adoption was a major part of the family plan for Roman um, uh, elites and senators, and in fact, Caesars. 
uh, the way things worked, uh, to send your sons through uh, as, a, as a Roman senator or a high-powered uh, individual in the Roman government, you'd have to send your sons through all this schooling and military and everything else so they could find a place in the power structure. It was terribly expensive. So you were motivated to have a very small family yet have sons. So you, would, you, would, you, would, you probably could only afford a couple of kids, two or three kids. The, most families during uh, the time of the writing of Ephesus in Rome, they would just want two or maybe three kids, and they really wanted that first one to be a son. As you might know, that doesn't always work out. And then not only that, sometimes sons for these ruling classes weren't ruling material. Every now and then, one of them would have a son who was kind of a lame and so adoption became a big part of their culture in the elite classes to identifying, oh, this is a good kid, but his family is a low, low-born family. And so uh, a Caesar even would adopt a son to basically choose his, uh, the one who would sit on the throne after him. So, so they would go and he would adopt a son, and he, would keep the, he would take the name of the Caesar, Caesar Augustus was adopted. For this very reason, it made for a smooth transition for, of power, and it made family affordable for the ruling class. The, the adoptions were a covenant, they were unrevocable, and they had one intended purpose, that this adopted one would inherit my money and my power. That was the purpose of the adoption. I will take you as my son because you are to receive my power and because you are to receive my inheritance. And so Jesus comes and He dies for us, and God says, I want to adopt you as my sons. And we would naturally assume He's just putting up with us. He's just, well, He has no other choice. And if we understand the context that Paul is writing Ephesians, he's saying, no, no, no. God is intending to adopt us that we might receive His kingdom and His power. He wants us to be deep into the family business. He wants us as broken as we are, to live as sons and daughters of the King, co-heirs with Christ. This is a God of grace, because He started planning for this before the creation of the world. He says, I want a kingdom of sons and daughters that I had to redeem, and that I will grant in Christ my power and my inheritance. If God put all this effort to bring us close to Him, why do we stand so far off? Why do we assume He is, is distant and somehow has to be convinced to come close? This only works if this is actually how God is. Is God actually this way? And why would He be that, this way? Look with me finally at verse 6. God is a God of grace, and He wanted us by His grace. Verse 6, He adopted Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purposes of, of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Why did He adopt us as sons and daughters? Because we're so impressive? Because we've got something to offer? Because He was lonely. No, none of these things are true. The reason He adopts us into His family, co-heirs with Christ, extends to us redemption through the blood of Jesus, is because of His glorious grace. Not just His grace, 
His glorious grace. See, some of us sort of see becoming a Christian like joining the military. You go to the recruiter. Oh, it's all roses. We'll pay for school. You're not going to have to go to Iraq. No, but we don't send people over there anymore. It'll be great. Basically, it's like vacation with camo. I mean, I'm kidding. If, if there are any recruiters here, I know that you don't all, not everybody does it that way. So you're like, yeah, okay. I'll accept the army into my heart. And uh, just a little joke. Then you get to boot camp and you meet the DI, right? So this is how we see the, the, what happens. It's like we go to the Billy Graham conference or whatever and, we, and say, come all who may. Uh, they play just as I am. And we come forward. And my sins are forgiven. And then all of a sudden we show up at church and the drill instructor is there. You're a horrible, horrible, horrible person. God doesn't like you. We're saved by grace because of God's glorious grace. We live by grace because of God's glorious grace grace. He wanted us by His grace. He keeps us by His grace. The purpose of our adoption is not to trick us into something hard and difficult and miserable. The purpose of our adoption is to uh, uh, display His glorious grace, and the purpose of our ongoing sonship is to display His glorious grace. One of the primary goals of the Christian life is to show that God is gracious. Thankfully for us here, we do a pretty good job of that, I think, right? One of the fundamental purposes of living a Christian life, some people say, well, when I, when I got saved, why didn't God just take me to heaven? Because He wants to show off His grace for your whole life. Thirty years in, people around you are going, are you sure God saved you? God wouldn't save a, a slub like you. It's like, yeah, I know. He's still showing me His grace. Can you believe this? that he saved a guy like me, and I've made so little progress over the 30 years of my life. The whole point of our Christian life is day in and day out, we go, I've never seen grace like this. Holy cow, it never quits. It's counterproductive to God's purpose in our life as Christians to not need His grace. Why did God save us? To the praise of what His what? His glorious ability to make us work our tails off. No, His glorious grace. It's actually counterproductive to our life in God to try to live a life in such a way that we don't need His grace. What's God will? What, what, what is God's will for my life as a Christian? We ask this question a lot. I get asked this question a lot. How do I know God's will for my life? I can tell you one thing for certain that God intends for your life to pour out His grace on you more than you could possibly imagine. He loves to show off His grace, and guess what? Lucky us, we will never stop needing it. Romans 5, beginning in verse 18, Paul said this. I'm going to read Romans 5, 18 to the beginning of Romans 6. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, we know what that means. One sin led to everybody condemned, Adam and Eve. Therefore, as Adam and Eve led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads justification, I should say leads to justification and life 
for all men. So what he's saying is just as Adam and Eve condemned all men, in Christ all who receive Him can receive justification in life. Verse 19 of Romans 5. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in, uh, to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? By no means. Don't be ridiculous, he would say. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that those of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death, and we were buried with Him, and we are raised with Him? He wants to extend to us His grace over and over and over again. He says, I want you to deeply desire my grace. Which do you want more? Do you want your sin or do you want my grace? Which is better, my grace or your sin? And he wants us in that moment to say to live in God's grace is better than to choose the short-lived pleasures of my sin. We have to, uh, in the moment of, of receiving His grace and in the moment of temptation, say, I can live in the, for the short term a pleasure here or I can live in the grace of Christ. Do I want to sin or do I want His grace? Grace is better. Should we keep on sinning that grace should abound? No. But it does. No, we shouldn't live, keep on sinning that we might just get more grace. That's, that's ridiculous. It's a silly question, really. Does grace abound? You better believe it. Well, a couple of errors we make about grace and how He wants us to live in His grace, well, one or two errors that we make. If we want grace in order to sin, we don't understand grace. If we want grace in order to have the ability and the freedom to sin, we don't really understand grace. Frankly, we don't really understand the deadly effects of sin either in that moment. If we want grace because of our sin, then we really understand grace. Error number two we often make, especially for those of us who have grown up in the church, if we think robust grace, let me say it clearly so I don't say it wrong. If I'm going to be wrong, I want to be clear about how wrong I am. That's kind of my thing. If you think robust, powerful, glorious grace leads to sin, then you don't understand grace. If you think robust, glorious grace of God leads us into sin, we don't understand how God's grace works. Grace does not lead us into sin. Grace always leads us closer to God Himself. Final error that I'm going to mention before we conclude. If you think as a Christian you will grow in, in, in maturity and in, in living for the Lord and eventually not need grace, then you don't understand grace. 
If you want grace in order to sin, you don't understand grace. If you think robust grace leads to sin, you don't understand grace. And if we think that we will someday grow as a Christian to the point where we don't need grace, we don't understand grace. He said, well, how is that possible? I was talking to a, a guy, this was years and years ago when I was in college, actually, and he'd been married to his wife for 175 years. He was an older man. I, I can't remember how long they'd been married. But anyway, they, we were asking him about being married that long. And uh, he said this. I've, I don't know. It stuck with me. I probably mentioned it here before. He said, I, he said, here's the thing. I've always loved my wife. I've loved her from the day I've met her. I loved her to this moment now. He was an older man, very old. I mean, old on old. And he said, what's difficult for me, he was thinking back to his, his wedding day all those years ago. And he said, boy, if you would have asked me in that moment if there was anyone I loved more, I, I, there wouldn't have been. He said, but standing here now and looking at what that was, I can't even call that love. He said, I, I mean, I know what it was. And in that moment, yes, it was. It was I mean, it was. There was nothing more powerful. But he said, now, 50 or 60 years later, he said, I, I don't even know what to call that. But to, to compare it with the love we have now, it, it's, it's almost silly. Did I really love my wife? Of course I did. But, but compared with the love I have now. So th- the point being, if, if we live in the grace of Christ all of our life, at the end of your life, you will not discover how little you need now. At the end of your life, you will discover how much more you ever needed. And you will look back to the moment you got saved, and you said, boy, I had no idea how bad I needed it. The longer you walk with the Lord, the more you will understand you need grace, not the more you will think you don't need it. Even at the end of our lives, we'll say, man, I, I need it. I need it more today than I ever have. I don't even know if, if at my conversion, if I really understood that I even needed grace. Now today, after 20, 30, 40, or 50 years of walking with the Lord, I say, Lord, I can't even get out of bed without your grace. That's tra- the trajectory of the Christian life. God is a God of grace. He wanted us first. He wanted us as family, and He wants us because of and by His grace alone, to show off His glorious grace. We were talking earlier about the dowry that a bride would give the groom, and the thing was, most often the dowry would be something that would be of interest to the groom, something that he might need or want. Apparently, for Egyptian pharaohs, they needed and wanted herds of goats. So, the bride's family in this way was motivated to think of or provide some gift that would appeal to the interests of the groom. The, the motivation here was, was giving uh, into the groom's concerns, the groom's interests. So, in relationship, our relationship with God, where He is the groom, what are His interests? God's primary interest that has been since the beginning of time is to show off His glorious grace. He's been planning since before the creation of the world to redeem sinners like us, to show off His glorious grace. He wants to make known to everyone who would see the matchless, unending nature of His grace. How do we approach a relationship with God given that this is His interest 
If His interest is to display the magnificence of His grace, uh, how are we supposed to approach our relationship with God? Well, the first thing we can do is bring Him our sin, our brokenness, our deadness. Because of who He is and because of what His grace is like, the greater the depth of our lostness, the greater the depths of our sin, the greater the expression of His matchless grace. Some of us work really, really hard to try and clean up our lives, in fact, so that God might pay attention to us. Ever done that? Man, I got to get things right. I got to stop running red lights. One, they're adding more cameras. Two, I think God will bless me more if I obey the traffic speed laws or we work hard to clean up our lives so God will pay attention to us, and we've completely forgotten the, the, what the Scripture teaches us about God, that He is so interested in relationship with us, and He's extraordinarily interested in the opportunity through us to show off His grace. Do you trust Him enough to just let Him pour His grace out on you? You trust Him enough to stop trying to, to be all put together, have it all dialed in, and to actually just come before Him desperate for His grace, just to have Him accept you because that's how He rolls? I would suggest you let Him worry about cleaning you up. In fact, He's promised He's going to do it. The Bible says, who, uh, the one who began a good work in you is faithful to what? complete it. He's better at cleaning us up than we are of cleaning ourselves up. Maybe it's time we stop trying to be all put together and come to God and let Him show off His grace in our lives and let Him figure out how to straighten things out. Now, I'm not saying that we set aside the call, especially in Ephesians, to live a life worthy of the calling we have in Christ Jesus, but here's what I believe strongly is the absolute most powerful way to live a life worthy of Christ Himself is to live a life drink, drinking deeply of the grace of God. Let me say it again. The absolute greatest and most powerful way to live a life worthy of the calling we have in Christ is to live a life drinking deeply of the grace God has given us. Here's why I think that. Because what happens is when uh, what moves God moves us we're able to allow the grace of Christ to actually be the rocket fuel for our relationships with others. What moved God uh, before the creation of the world to have a relationship with us? What moved Him? What motivated Him? His grace. He, he says, I, 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 love, I love showing off my grace. So I'll, because of that, I'm moved to have a relationship with you. So what would happen to us if what motivated God actually motivated us? When God's grace is what moves us, we can actually offer real grace to our wives and to our husbands. When it's God's grace that moves us, we can actually offer real grace to our boss and to our employees. When it's God's grace that moves us, we can, we can offer real grace to our children and to our parents. As recipients of the grace of God, we become a beacon of grace into the lives of others. So here's the strategy of the enemy, and by the enemy I mean Satan. If you think I'm kooky because I believe in the devil, 
well, I can't fix that. It's just real. He's a real dude. He just has one mission. You know what his mission is? To murder everyone who has ever lived. So his enemy, the strategy of this enemy of ours, is to convince us that God is short on His grace to us so that we are then short on grace to others. Then the word gets out, God's not that gracious. Pretty good strategy. I think it's working. He convinces us God is short on grace. We are then short on grace for others. And word's out, God's a grumpy old man looking for a good reason to give somebody a spanking. We need to be the ones who break this cycle. We need to be the ones who are moved by the grace of God in our lives so that we can pour out the grace of God into the lives of others to the praise of His glorious grace. Another result of learning to trust God by drinking deeply of His grace is it develops in us a heart of gratitude. The more we dwell in God's grace... And the more we see His grace for all of its beauty and all of its immensity, the more our hearts will be filled with thanks and gratitude. It's only a power of God's grace that will melt our rock-hard, frozen hearts. Even with our hearts of stone, God pours His grace out on us, and when we receive it in faith, He begins to melt us, and we receive what He has given us, forgiveness of sins that's new every morning, and we say, oh, that's right, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your grace again today and again in this moment. All right, I'll end with this. Just think about something if you don't mind. There's someone in your life, um, they're not all that well put together. I mean, they got problems. Their issues have issues. Uh, they have problems. It's a, it's a strain on your relationship. It takes a lot of grace on your part to have them in your life. You got that person in your mind? Is it me? I feel like it's me. It's all right. We can just say it out loud and be done with it. So what I'm saying here is this, and we all have people like that in our lives. Some of them are in our homes, and some of them are people we work with. Some of them are people uh, we're related to but don't live in our homes. Some of them are uh, people we know in church. They're people that require grace. And what we're saying is the, the challenge is not for us to try and muster up the strength to offer them grace. The challenge here is for us to understand this. When I see grace is needed in the life of somebody else, and I realize I don't have the grace to offer what they need. The problem is not that they need too much grace. The problem is, for some reason, I haven't received enough. When I see someone who needs grace that I can't afford, it means for some reason I have not received enough. Because who is the source of our grace? It's God Himself. And when does it run out? It never runs out. So if somebody needs grace that I can't provide, the problem is not that they need too much grace. The challenge I'm facing is somehow I have cut off the supply. If what we're reading here in Ephesians chapter 1 is true, and if, if we haven't received enough, it isn't because God hasn't given us grace. He's, he's given us all of His grace to the praise of His glorious grace. It's because either I don't trust that God is really that gracious, 
or I haven't really understood my own need of it. It's either because I think God is not that gracious, or I don't think I'm that bad. If I'm short on grace, it's one of two options in my mind. It's either God is not that gracious, or I'm not that bad, so I don't need that much grace. So here's what I'd like you to think about for that person that you have in your mind. God needs grace from you, or I should say that person needs grace from you. In fact, their life in the Lord might depend on it. They might need grace from the Lord from you, and they're depending on it from you, from God, and you don't have it. How are you going to get it? How are you going to have the grace necessary to extend it to the people around you who need the grace the Lord has to offer? We simply need to come before God and say, God, show me how much I need your grace. Don't show me how much grace they need. Show me how much I need your grace. Break me again, God, and reveal to me my own depravity and depths of need. Show me, God, again that you're not a cheapskate, and you will provide grace to me that will never end. What is the brokenness in your life, the sin in your life that requires grace, and you're either minimizing it or you're pretending it doesn't exist, and so therefore you're not applying God's grace to it? How are you going to give grace to your brother and sister in the Lord if you refuse to receive God's grace for the brokenness you know is there? Now's the time to come before the Lord and say, God, give me your grace. I don't want to be that way anymore. I want to pursue your grace and not the short-term pleasures of this world.